One day, you will be able to look through the ground to see what lies beneath your city, from sewers to the ancient borders of the Roman Empire. You will be able to navigate the world without a map. This is the promise of augmented reality, a technology that includes everything from Snapchat filters in Pokemon Go to navigation, virtual surgery and much, much more. But what does it mean to augment our vision? Can we call it a new stage of human evolution where humans will gain the power of supersight? Welcome back to Playing With Reality with me, Menno van Dorn, a new podcast by information technology company, Society. When we think about playing with reality, augmenting our vision is probably one of the first things that comes into mind. To change how we perceive the world for fun, to learn, to make life easier, this is the essence of what we want to explore in this series. This new world of interactive technology is projected to reach some $90 billion by 2028. There's so much excitement about the possible future growth. From Apple to Google, and Microsoft to Facebook, all the big players are coming out with glasses, goggles and more, competing to become the leaders in this nascent field. But to some, augmented reality might seem just like a fad, something which will peak in hype like Pokemon Go, then fall away as it is overtaken by the bigger beasts of the metaverse. I want to know whether augmented reality will be so important and influential in tomorrow's world of tech in order to know where AR is going, we need to know where it came from. To get at the heart of this, I got in touch with an old friend of mine who is an expert in AR, a friend who coined the term Superside. So David, it's just us. It's just you and me, yeah. That's David Rose, an entrepreneur, MIT lecturer, author, and expert on all things to do with designing a better metaverse. I met David back in 2013, and we quickly got chatting about his work in this field, because he really has done everything. His current role is as CTO of Home Outside, an AR tool that will allow people to redesign their backyards. And before that, he founded other AR companies like Clearwater and lectured on digital technologies at MIT, amongst many, many other things. I called him up to find out some more about what he perceives augmented reality to truly be. Where did it come from? And what falls under its technological umbrella? And I still remember the smile on your face when we were in Austin a couple of months ago, when this guy said, let's not take a taxi, but take this electrical uh, scooter. And you were actually the first one to grab one of those scooters. And I saw this smile on your face like you were a child in a, in a candy store. <laughs> so have you always been like this, exploring the world through new stuff, new technologies? I think I've always been an aggressive early adopter and you know, interested in the difference between how you predict something will make you feel or you know, what it will do to your 
to your life or to your relationships versus what it actually does. Because I feel like we so often get that wrong. The, <laughs> the, you imagine that the, you know, the Alexa in your kitchen is going to allow you to play more songs and, you know, revisit your rock and roll past than what turns out to be the case <laughs> is like, your kids start yelling at it and, and are learn how to be rude. And, and your wife starts despising you for bringing new technology into the home. And, you know, it all, it all changes once, once you actually start using the thing. So like, I'm just, I'm interested in that, in that dichotomy of the, like what you predict and what actually turns out to be the case. Well, you are an explorer when we talk about this new technology. Could you explain maybe what, what is the essence of augmented reality according to you? Well, I think the the ultimate vision of augmented reality is that we will have a blended view of the world, one that that captures computer-generated layers and our view of the real world, and they will be synchronized. So the computer-generated images will be on plane with the table or or against the wall surface or on your countertop kind of in perspective against the road in perspective translating signs in context so that we will be able to see what we normally see and then another layer of interpretation on top of that but there are lots and lots of permutations of what this is kind of ending up being with augmented reality where we're we're kind of seeing signs and signals of this that are not this fully realized mixed reality so for example like a rear view backup camera is what probably most of us have experienced today as augmented reality, right? Like we see out of the back of our car and it's not just the view from the back of the car, but it also no. includes these like lines on the road and the lines change as you turn your wheel. So it can kind of anticipate that you're going to hit the car next to you or the trike or whatever's behind you. Like that is augmented reality or, you know, blind spot warning systems. You know, all, all of these things are kind of the super lightweight version of that. Yeah, so that's the the lightweight version. That's the augmented reality in our in our own lives today. There's also a historical context talking about augmented technologies, like uh, you know the media guru Marshall McLuhan talked about it. The technology augments us in in different ways. Can you give some examples of the historical context of where we how we should perceive the augmented reality of today? Sure. Well, I think of many types of new of technologies are augmentations, you know, of the human. So certainly the glasses that you and I are wearing give us an ability that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to have, which is to adapt to reading, uh, <laughs> reading texts that are close to our eyes. And so we all rely on this kind of a type of augmentation or a type of prosthetic, you know, that we've all become, and we don't even think of this as a technology anymore. We just all have like reading glasses. And so I, I think of reading glasses or Gore-Tex or zippers or air conditioning, you know, all of those are technologies that change us and change our world and change our comfort and change our abilities. And I think we should see, you know, spell checking and other, you know, and, and augmented reality, language translation tools. These are all augmentations of a type. So would you say then that augmented reality as we 
talk about this te new technology today is more a part of an evolution of mankind or evolution of technology than a revolution? I think that's the right way to, to position it. Mm -hmm. You have this slow Darwinian evolution that we see in the natural world. And I think technologies are just a faster paced evolution, you know, for people that are lucky enough to be able to use them. I found what David said about prosthetics really interesting. Augmenting reality rather than creating a virtual one can feed into anything we use, from simple eyeglasses and car windows, for instance, to implants and then the most high-tech headsets on the market. Some of that is just in theory anyway. I want to know more about AR as hardware, the kind of things which we understand as augmenting our perceptions, because this is the essence of playing with reality. I needed to speak to someone else in the AR world to explain to me how we got there and where we are now. How do we get in a place where SuperSight is possible and what will it take to make it available for all? So I got in touch with Jason McDowell. Jason is incredibly passionate about all things related to AR. Not only he is an investor and entrepreneur in companies in this space, he also has his own podcast. It's called The AR Show, where he speaks to the brightest minds in AR to learn more about the cutting edge of tech in this field. When he is not chatting into his microphone, Jason is the VP product and head of visual experiences at Ostendo Technologies. That's a company that has built a quantum photonic imager. That's something that optimizes the way in which consumers can view both worlds at the same time, the physical reality and the projected augmented reality. He was definitely the perfect person to tell me more about the roadmap to getting to a world where AR is fully integrated in our lives. So hello, Jason. Hi, it's great to be here. Happy to have you here, I would say. Before we dive in all these kind of details about augmented reality, first I would say I'm curious to know where your obsession with AR comes from. I studied engineering in college. I went to Carnegie Mellon University to study computer engineering. And at that time, that was the late 90s. I was really obsessed with what that time was the coming age of smartphones. And for me, augmented reality is really an extension of this general idea of being more connected to the information and to the internet around us and being able to overlay the information. Hmm. I was first exposed to AR, mobile AR, around 2010, 11 timeframe in the early days of, I think it was Zappar or one of those companies had produced yeah. this uh, world web browser sort of thing where you can hold up your phone and they had these geo pins, these pins placed on the, uh, based on kind of the compass heading of the phone, what direction you were looking, you could see, oh, there's the Eiffel Tower in that direction. And fundamentally it is about the use case. It is about how does it improve the human experience and our connection to our real world around us by using the information that we have stored digitally. Well, I mean, maybe the most important question or the, the thing I'm most curious about would be whether we will actually be able to create this world of super side, whether we will become Superman or Superwoman. What would be the roadmap of getting there? So from a technical historical perspective, we as technologists, those in, in the world of technology, have been imagining what would be possible if since the late 1960s. It's been a long time. 
there wasn't a lot of progress for decades. It wasn't until the late 80s, 90s, mid 90s, where we kind of took an, another step forward in terms of capabilities. And, and that had a lot to do with our ability to compute. Like what, do, what is the imagery we need to even be able to see? We have to be able to compute that. There's a lot more effort in doing that than a simple 2D display and having an understanding of the real world. And we kind of began to understand what are all the necessary ingredients to make something like this work? But at that time, computing just wasn't good enough. Optics wasn't good enough. That was the first wave of VR also it was in the mid nineties. We had this first attempt and, and then it kind of receded again for 10, 15 years. And it came back in the early 2000, 2010s. And we had both Oculus on the VR side and Google Glass on the AR side come forward and say, we can, we're trying again. We think that the computing is now good enough to be able to deliver a decent experience. Display technology is good enough. Optics is okay. And at that time, there was a lot of engineering put into these devices, exploration of what could what they could be. Google had a very specific perspective on what good looked like. Microsoft had a very different perspective on what good looked like. They came at it from very two different angles in the world of see-through AR. And Google took the perspective that wearability is key. The glass has to be comfortable enough to be worn for some reasonable period of time, even if that means we have to, the capabilities of the device suffer considerably. There's only one display, kind of sat in front of your eye, looked like you're a bit of a cyborg, but it was very lightweight. Had a little camera on it, connected to your smartphone. And then HoloLens, they took a different approach. They took, was effectively a fighter pilot helmet with a lot of capabilities, and they tried to make it more human-like, right? L less helmet-like and a bit more glasses-like. And so it kind of ended up halfway in between. And that device had tons of capabilities in it. And they made a really capable device, but it was not small. And anyways, we just kind of saw through those two companies, the experimentation that was happening at that time and, and some of the big challenges. For Microsoft, it, it turned out to be really difficult to make it smaller, given the set of technology sources that they made. And for Google, they seemed to not invest a ton, at least that's the external perspective. We saw them release an initial version and it was in the consumer mind space for a while. And then it kind of regressed from the consumer space, but it lived on in, in the enterprise space, mostly within medical and warehouse. They focused on their simplicity and they learned that there are some use cases that can be useful, good enough with that sort of very simple wearable sort of focus. With all the crazy technology going on behind it, it's amazing that something so relatively simple as comfort should be such a priority for the AR glasses manufacturers. And if they get the comfort right, Jason thinks it could hold the key to integrating technologies into our normal vision. So what are the key use cases for AR then? What are the cutting edge products currently on the market that are changing the way consumers think about the industry? David had some really interesting thoughts about this. The thesis of your book is in your face, I would say, it's super side, is that what's all about? It's giving us super powers or super magic or... Yeah, I think that's the, the question that I'm asking is what types of services will be enabled if we have kind of cameras that are trained to see and recognize are embedded in everyday things, including in, in the wearables that are, that are on our face, and if the interaction is that intimate. I think it's nice also to have some examples of maybe of the work that you do with the eyeglass manufacturer, Warby Parker. Can you maybe explain what you're, what you're doing over there? Sure. Well, at Warby Parker, because glasses are such a fashion accessory, 
it's a really highly considered purchase. Getting the prescription right is, you know, a quarter of the problem when pe- when people are buying glasses. People are doing different things with their glasses. Some people are, you know, playing an instrument or working on the computer a lot. And so you kind of need the size of the glasses also shapes how it performs in different situations. So when the iPhone first came out, it was the iPhone 10 that first came out that had the front-facing camera that would unlock the phone with your face. That had the technology in it in order to basically give us a, almost a LiDAR scan of the terrain of the face. And with that data, it was 40,000 points that are cast against your face. So we were able to access that data and kind of divine the terrain of the face and then and then recommend glasses that would fit all of these details of your face. So that was the first generation of the technology. And then the next generation of the technology that my team built was a um, virtual try-on. And virtual try-on now, I think, is one of the kind of glowing examples for how AR yeah. is being used in the world. So we, we digitized the product line and uh, wrote an algorithm, patented it to basically place these appropriately on your face. And it's been a huge success for the company because people can now, they're in the Warby Parker app, they can swipe down and they can open the camera and they can see what those particular glasses look like on their face. And then they can very quickly decide, oh, let me, what do the smaller frames look like? What are more contrasty frames look like? And then they can share that on social media or share that with their friends and they can just get to the glasses decision faster. Have you been surprised by the, uh, you know, the advices that the system gave you, for instance, to, to use other glasses? Or I think we, when we built the system for virtual try-on, we mostly were relying on the individual to make the judgment for how they look. Because I led the R&D team, we were also working on what's called a subjective neural network, which is the type of network that would give you fashion advice. Yeah. And that, I think, is really one of the most, I think, the bleeding edge... You know, deep fakes and and subjective neural nets are kind of the bleeding edge of this technology mm-hmm. where you say, well, wouldn't I rely on a designer to give me advice on exactly. which on which glasses look good on my face or which furniture looks good in my house or which, you know, landscaping looks good out front? And the truth is, if designers agree, if you can find designers that agree, then you can train a neural network to predictably give the same as same advice as a designer would give, mm-hmm. which is kind of bonkers a little bit that we're going to have technologies that really give the expertise to be an art director. Mm. You know, we, we were building a, a three neural network system at Warby Parker that would look at your complexion and your face shape and your face size um, and where you were in the world <laughs> and take an, and, and use all of those to give you to try to predict which glasses, you know, you would quote, look best in or m- be most likely to be happy about. Whether it's fashion gaming or understanding our built environment, the possibilities seem to be endless. But comfort is king, and uncomfort is today's reality. Let's return to those smart glasses. What if Warby Parker could put the same technology it uses in the smartphone camera and put it in their specs to look at the world around you? This would be super sight on another level, and the kind of thing we all associate with augmented reality. I went back to Jason to find out more about what it takes to make successful AR-driven smart glasses from a hardware perspective. 
I would call it the holy trinity of SuperSight. You talk about three things, uh, visual quality, information context, and device comfort. Mm. So can you explain how these elements play together and how difficult it is to get it all right in order to create these fantastic new glasses that everybody wants and actually works? Yeah. Uh, first, let me let me back up and throw throw out another analogy mm-hmm. or similarity. So, in the PC era and the mobile area, mobile era, there were two two events that were very mirrored each other. And this was this idea that is the right device the device that's engineered for the enterprise, or is the right winning device the one that is underpowered, undersized, built for the consumer, but then is upgraded over time to work well for the enterprise. And in both the PC era and the mobile era, the answer was the consumer-grade device was the winner. The entirety of our internet, our PCs, our laptops, everything is based on that consumer-grade architecture that was developed in the PC era. Same thing is true for the smartphone era. It was not the Nokia communicator or the early attempts by IBM or you know the RIM BlackBerry device that won Those were devices that were targeting the enterprise because those were the people that were willing to pay for the value that they provided. These early attempts at creating this sort of value was very clearly felt. The ROI was very obvious within the enterprise, but it wasn't those devices that won. Yeah, I see coming what you're going to say now. Yeah. (laughs) It will happen again. It'll happen again, right? Uh So we have the same thing smartphones, Android and iOS, iPhone, that dominate the enterprise today. But ultimately, they took that consumer-grade device and they upgraded it to be good enough for enterprise. The same thing I believe to be true for AR, for smart glasses. It will not be a HoloLens-like device that ends up winning the consumer or the enterprise. It will not be a real-wear-like device that ends up winning over the long term. And it's not that these companies don't appreciate that, right? They, they understand that they're taking advantage of what's available today in terms of the appetite on the enterprise side and the technology that's available. But ultimately, the architecture that's going to win is a consumer-grade architecture. And the elements of a consumer-grade architecture are really revolve around wearability as the most fundamental attribute of the device. If it's not truly wearable, then it's not going to have a chance in the consumer realm. And within that, we have to also accept that Because small is very hard, capabilities are left out in the process of making it truly small. So these early devices are not going to be what Microsoft and the hype train collectively are are selling as this fully immersive alternative reality that we're going to be walking around in. It's going to be limited ultimately in its capability, but that device is the one that's going to win over time as we are able to increase its capability, increase its relevance for enterprise over time. That's what's going to win, I believe fundamentally. If you take that comparison... Will it be the glasses that only take a picture that people, you know, like Snap introduce to the market? What will be the minimal viable product to conquer the hearts of the consumer? That one is a little bit less less obvious to me. I love the experimentation that a Snap is doing right now, where they are creating a wearable pair of glasses that incorporates some technology, incorporates camera, incorporates, you know, something like the Facebook MetaBook metaverse, whatever they're calling themselves, meta, <laughs> meta platform. Still confused. Their device is kind of also directionally similar in that they're trying to incorporate some technology and get people comfortable with the idea of wearing something that incorporates this sort of technology. And it's a great place to learn. It's a great place to learn about the human comfort side of things. And, and I think kind of going back to this triumvirate that you talked about, this device comfort, visual quality, information context, this notion of device comfort is really paramount. Visual quality, of course, is this ability to see clearly digital and physical that includes the the real world, sometimes in some of these experiments that I've seen, you have an okay 
digital picture, but you can't really see the real world very well, or vice versa. And, you know, device comfort is really about this idea of being able to wear it for an extended period of time, and information context is about delivering timely and relevant information. If the ultimate goal is to have people wearing smart glasses all the time and everywhere, then having a product which people can wear for an extended period of time is vital. And this consumer-centric approach to their creation has come alongside the developments in miniaturization and more. But what else will happen in the future of this technology? Where is it going next? In this series, we are taking you into the heart of the metaverse. So I wanted to know where AR stands. How will the real-world metaverse, as we might call AR, help us to navigate the world? I asked David for his thoughts on this. So what's the part of the metaverse that you actually like? Mm. I am very interested in and would like to talk about two projects that I'm working on that are all about the the real world metaverse. That is the AR metaverse. That is Why do you call it the real world? Because the assumption is that they're the ground plane that we're designing on top of is the world hmm. rather than rather than nothingness <laughs> as the ground plane. <laughs> and like one of the projects that I'm working on is about navigating the real world. And I do feel like that may be one of the kind of killer apps for AR is just getting around. I mean, we've we've been using Google for decades and in order to help us kind of make sense of where we are in the world and where we're going and the best way to get there. I feel like that layer of information kind of mapped to the real world has been incredibly useful and really changed all of our lives. So it's all about navigating the real world. Well, I feel like for navigating the real world in a car, we've kind of done the experiment and that is one of the killer apps for for the metaverse. I'm working on a project right now for the water world. It's called Clearwater AR. And the first fantasy that we had was, boy, if we have kind of data elevation models if we understand the terrain of what's below you, which has been mapped out by by boats with sonar or by satellites that are that have penetrating lidar that penetrate the water column, yeah. So we have the mountains that are below the water um, mapped, and people would love to see those. If you're a boater and you don't want to hit rocks, or if you're a fisher a fisher person and you'd like to see where the underwater structure is, like you'd love to be in a glass bottom boat, regardless of the lakes transparency <laughs> in order to see that world below. So we have a we have a system where you can hold up your phone or put on glasses and you basically see the topo lines or the terrain of the world below, which is a type of navigation and you can also use it to safely get from point A to point B in the world given tides and currents and wind and other boats and all those all the other complexities of the water world. I would call it super side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I was presenting. I was presenting the the ability to see into the human body for doing surgical procedures and through the concrete of the city to understand the infrastructure. When somebody approached me after the conference and said, "Boy, could you do the same for water?" and I said, "Yeah, yeah, we yeah. could. We could <laughs> Never do the thought same." About it. <laughs> <laughs> AR for navigation again shows that technology follows consumer preferences. So the future of SuperSight is the future of our own preferences. But when is it going to happen? Both Jason and David are working on some truly groundbreaking tech 
but will it be used tomorrow? Next year, maybe? Is that full integration something we should celebrate? Or should we be nervous about it? Because a world where everyone is constantly plugged into AR, seeing a warped vision of reality, could come with a downside. I asked Jason when he sees this technology being fully integrated in our lives. But if we look at the future, and maybe that's the you know the twist in our conversation now. So what's the end point when, if ever, but let's assume we are all positive about this technology, will these technologies become fully integrated in our lives? Can you give me a ballpark figure, a year? A year, okay. Fully integrated. Yeah. Meaning that it has some sort of like, what, 20, 50% penetration, 50%? Oh, let's be ambitious. 50%. I'm going to go with 2034. <laughs> Very specific. In I'm not view. going to ask why specifically. Uh, so you know. there are a lot of things that have to happen between here and there. I'll just highlight a couple of those things. I think in the near term, we're going to see a lot of emphasis around devices that people call mixed reality devices. They're basically VR devices that have good cameras and, and better software processing on them that allow you to take in the real world and then mix that with the digital screen that you're staring at. So you're looking at the real world through a screen. And these devices are going to get better and smaller over time, but they're still going to be VR devices that will allow you to mix in the real world. And those will be amazing platforms for entertainment and education and, and maybe even productivity. But there's still living room sorts of devices or conference room sorts of devices. We're not going to be walking down the street, I don't believe at all with a device like this. And so those sorts of devices, I think, so if we're gonna see these sort of video pass through VR devices that people call mixed reality, if that is the, the mid 2020s, 2023, four, five, six, with those devices, we're gonna get good at understanding how far those devices can go in terms of their capabilities, and we get better at how do we mix the real world with the digital. And so we're still early in this adoption of head-worn technology. And so I think that even as we get the technology ingredients themselves to be good enough, there's still years of experimentation around how do we make it a great experience? How do we put all these things together in something that's truly fantastic that consumers will eagerly go out and adopt? And I think mm. we need a few years of that sort of iteration beyond the initial adoption, the initial availability of the core ingredients from a technology perspective. I was thinking, is it, isn't this just the opposite of super side? Is this just narrow side? Aren't we in the end narrowing down what people should pay attention to instead of you know, broadening your view without any technology. So you speak to something very fundamental, I think, about the human experience and interaction with the real world. Yeah. How much technology should there be and how much should it get out of the way? Is it really just a facilitator of that real world human experience or is it meant to replace real world sort of experience? I agree that there is a risk that we become fully immersed. And, and we'll get to a point where we're gonna experiment with it. Somebody will create some sort of device and we'll play with it and we'll realize, you know what? For the vast majority of us, we still enjoy the real world. And it's about enhancing, uplifting that a little bit mm -hmm. so that we can make better decisions, faster decisions, whatever it happens to be. I think the bigger risk from a dystopian future perspective is the fact that these devices, in order to be, to deliver great experiences, have to have a lot of awareness of what's happening with you physically where you are in the world, how you're feeling in that moment, as can be perceived based on your head motion or your eye motion or the way that your eye contracts. These sorts of things are all going to be inputs into the device that are being captured by these devices. 
And the dystopian version of, of this future is that all that information gets sent back to some nefarious overarching technology provider who yeah. wittingly or unwittingly shares that information with some organization who is intent on changing your opinion about something. Yeah. And this could be anything from benignly suggesting you go test drive a particular car because you think the car looks great to changing the way that you vote, right? Or changing your opinion about some sort of political hot topic. And that is the bigger risk, is around manipulation in a way that we are not consciously aware of, that we don't directly sign up for. So in 2034, by Jason's reckoning, we are all going to be manipulated by our glasses as well. Is this going to be a world where the barrage of information is never out of sight? It's certainly a terrifying thought. But let's not end on a dystopian note. If we want to play with reality, it should be about a better future. One built around enhancing and uplifting our normal lives. Because that is the key thing that I have learned from this episode. AR has the potential, maybe more than any other technology in this space, to provide real-world help in the here and now. Built around comfort of use and helping in everyday tasks, AR has the capability to transform the real world as we know it. It could create a real world metaverse where we live not as avatars, but as people adapting the world around us, using technology to make things easier, faster and better. And what will that world look like? Well, I will let David to have the final word with a utopian view of AR in the years to come. Let's finish off with one utopian, maybe a last utopian view. Could you explore maybe a little bit about how we would maybe improve the way we connect to each other and communicate with each other and talk to each other? So what kind of positive scenario would that would that be or could it be? Yeah, I have a, an image in the book, which is my kind of envisioning a conversational scaffolding system that might help people in those first moments of a conversation, you want to find commonalities. Sometimes those happen naturally. And for some people, those happen very naturally. But I think a lot of people could be helped by having kind of a metadata cloud that's orbiting around the head of other people, kind of like a swarm of bees mm -hmm. um, visually <laughs> that shows you these are the points of commonality. The way you create rapport often, or like if you think about the exquisite party host friend of yours who says, oh, Menno, you have to meet Lisa. You both share this bizarre interest in, you know, foil board kite surfing or like something <laughs> like something that nobody else in the room does. Yeah. So I see this kind of service as like the exquisite party host who finds those uncommon commonalities and you might ignore them like you don't have to it doesn't have to be a conversational topic but at least it allows you to kind of see oh yeah we both went to super tiny fringy colleges you mean like a conversational starter yes yes i really feel like it's one of the most interesting use cases of of augmented reality so david thank you so much <laughs> sure this has been this has been fun that's all for today thank you so much for listening and to both David and Jason, for their beautiful insights. Make sure to pick up David's book, Superside, and to tune in to Jason's podcast, The AR Show, of course, if you want to learn more about what they're both up to. Next time, we'll be going deeper into the metaverse 
looking at its origins and early incarnations to create a roadmap which will lead us to the current state of play in the world of VR. Do join us again next time on Playing With Reality. Yeah.